Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Cam, joining us today, our second author on the show officially, it is none other than Andy Onyx. Andy, hello. Hi there, Scott. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad, mate. Thanks for joining us today. Um, I suppose before we get into the film we're tackling, we want to hear a little bit about yourself. So, I mean, I know you through you know Twitter, Instagram, Spy Brewery as well. How did you get involved in the spy world? What what first brought you into sort of spy movies and and writing as well? Uh, well, in reverse order, um, I guess kind of growing up in the era that I did. In the in the early to mid seventies, that was the thing: spy, fi action, movies, Bond, all that sort of thing. It, it kind of infused everything, and uh, life goes on. And um, yeah, that's 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 that was my route, really. You know, it kind of infused everything. So I got involved in music and um, made a few albums and so forth in the around the around the turn of the century let's say millennial and a few years ago i started writing and um i started with a memoir which was like a medley of memories there's not a lot of spy stuff in there just a, a few easter eggs if you will and uh, then we moved on to what we call the barbell series which is which started with the glimmer girl and more recently we've uh, we've released and published shamstone yeah, so uh, that's that's where we are. Well, I have a question. Um, so you said you were into spy, you know, literature and the genre uh, yeah. back in the seventies and what have you. What yeah. what films or what books or what drew you in? Like, what were kind of your favorites that made you that much more inspired to perhaps write that way? Well, to be honest, Cam, that that you know, it, it's a it, it's a really a really good question. Because in actual fact, it took me decades to actually pick up uh, an Ian Fleming Bond book. So my actual route was through the movies, and um, and really, my my it's it's a bit of an ages of man thing, isn't it, with Bond? Hmm. But um, my Bond really was was it. You don't hear it very often, but my Bond was Roger Moore, really. Yeah. In the in the era that I grew up, and um, yeah, and. Uh, and really, the, the the boss of all of it for me, probably to this day, in in actual fact, is is the spy who loved me, uh, due to Mrs. Ringo Starr, Barbara Back, and uh, the uh, Lotus Esprit. Yeah, um, but as I say, the, the ingredients of spy fi or spy movies really martial arts, a bit of style, a bit of music, uh, gadgetry. It's it you know it it was all there, but it did take me many decades to actually uh, come round to actually picking up a an Ian Fleming Bond book. The first uh, kind of spy book I ever read was Fist of God by Mr. Frederick Forsyth. Um, yeah, but um, since I started writing, it's very very important to keep the the conveyor belt you know feeding in. So you know I've I've, I've touched on the carry. Len Dayton, Ian Fleming as well, and, and, and more sort of contemporary writers like Simon Conway and so forth, Mick Heron. So, yeah. 
So what, what prompted you to go from sort of writing music firstly, and then moving into the spy writing genre? Obviously you said you put your memoirs out first, but what prompted you to sort of move through that sort of cycle into making spy novels of all things? Because there's plenty <laughs> of uh, things you could write and you chose spies. Well, uh, you're kind of boxing me in, aren't you? You're being a bit craftier. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> how can I put this? <laughs> to some degree, you, you've, you've, got to, you've got to write what you know, you know, but how can I put this? Um, when it when it comes when it comes down to to a novel or, or any kind of fiction writing, it, whatever the genre is, there are ordinary things going on around it, aren't they? It's it's a bit like a, like we mentioned martial arts earlier. There'd be nothing more mind bending or 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 abhorrent than a ninety minute action fight sequence in a film, you know. Um, so we've got ordinary human activity. Um, that's probably got a layer of espionage or, or, or so forth within, within, within a film. So let, let's take Bond again, for example. You know, the, the great argument is that he's not, he's not actually a spy at all, is he? He's a, he's a security man or an assassin in the movies, isn't he? But um, there, is a, there is a lot of things that we know and love going on, apart from him actually shooting people or, uh, you know, or, or or so forth, you know. So, in terms of what I write, yes, the, yes, it's the there's there it's a series. There are spy novels, um, but they've got a lot of culture in there as well. You know, there's there's music in there, there's style in there, there's history in there. There's all sorts of things. But yes, the 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 undercurrent are you know they are spy stories. They are they are infused in espionage. We've also got a bit of folklore in there, believe it or not. And, and a little touch of magic realism. So it kind of maybe is pushing it into a unique corner of the of the genre. I don't know. I'll let you guys decide. <laughs> well, for those that are listening, you know, what is sort of the, the pitch for these stories you write? You know, whether Glimmer Girl or just the series as a whole, like what is sort of the, the concept, you know, just to communicate to the listener? Right. With the, with the Glimmer Girl, the tagline that we have right at the beginning of the Glimmer Girl was Day of the Jackal meets the Wicker Man. Hmm. So the, the Frederick Forsyth classic, The Day of the Jackal, which is like, a again, a bit of an argument with people saying, well, it's not actually a spy novel. It's a, it's a, it's a detective procedural or whatever. But for me, it's, it, it falls into that bracket due to the, the Jackal, the assassin's procedures, his tradecraft, uh, the methods he uses to achieve his aims. And within The Glimmer Girl, there is a pursuit um that takes place it actually begins in 1914 but the actual pursuit takes place in 1921 and is linked to the uh the irish treaty the irish treaty for the free state and um the pursuit is is undertaken by sir mansfield smith cumming the original c and he chooses a team of two men to undertake that operation and um the echoes of what transpires then flip to the present day with a with a young recruit um, to SIS who I who I felt really somebody really real and tangible um, female. She's she's very talented. She's actually a carpenter by trade. She then crossed over into education, but then she got the sticky algorithm SIS. Uh, 
advertisement, we need you, and, uh, and signed up. So she finds herself in the modern iteration of what is known as Barbell, which is a, is a small cell, again, a three-man cell, uh, that, that, that are tasked to undertake things of an unexplained nature. Yeah, so um, that's, that's where we are with the Glimmer Girl, with Shamstone, one of the characters from the earlier period within the Glimmer Girl, F.N. Simons, Finn Simons. It's basically his first person uh, retelling of his adventures in the First World War, from his recruit under, recruitment under duress to uh, adventures off the coast of Ireland, to New York, and to Mexico in search of the Zimmerman telegram. So Very cool. I hope I haven't uh, confused you too much, because we know in Spilet, there's, there's always a little element of WTF, what the F is going on, but uh, <laughs> hopefully I haven't lost you too far with that explanation. That, that may be a good segue, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it is actually, yeah. So, um, speaking of WTF, uh, Cam, what are we doing this week? Yes, we are tackling the 1987 Roger Donaldson film, No Way Out. Such a good title. Mm, it is, yeah. Um, well, I usually would uh, talk about our experiences first, but I want to talk about something specially. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to do the letterbox.com synopsis first and then lead into our initial experiences with it. Okay. Okay. So here is the uh, letterbox.com synopsis. I would suggest you grab a pillow and a blanket to get comfortable for this one. Oh, geez. <laughs> <sighs> no way out. Is it a crime of passion or an act of treason? Navy Lieutenant Tom Farrell meets a young woman, Susan Atwell, and they share a passionate fling. Farrell then finds out that his superior, Defence Secretary David Bryce, is also romantically involved with Atwell. When the young woman turns up dead, Farrell is put in charge of the murder investigation. He begins to uncover shocking clues about the case, but when details of his encounter with Susan surface, he becomes a suspect as well. You know, normally I'm not a fan of these uh, prolonged um, <laughs> synopses, but in the case of No Way Out, I actually think it's kind of necessary. Um, I'm going to touch back on that in a minute, because that actually relates to an experience I had with this source material. In that case, then, why don't we say Andy... As you're our guest, you're first. Do you have any prior experience to this film before watching it for this uh, for this podcast? Not at all. Not at all, Scott. Uh, you know, it, it's a it's a it's a complete blind date for me. I did a little bit of research regarding the the novel that it was based on, but as the the novel was actually um, in a different genre, I, I didn't really want to waste time exploring it. So um, no. Okay, that's fine. I, I, I like yeah. a blind watch, is what I did too, to be fair. Uh, what about you, Cam? I had just heard of it. I mean, I've seen the majority of the Kevin Costner films around this time period. Uh, for some reason, this one always has just slipped through the cracks. I was aware, uh, Roger Ebert was like a huge fan of this movie, and I had his book of reviews, several of them, in fact. And I remember reading this review when I was much younger and being like, oh, I should watch that at some point, but it just never 
you know, it was never at a video store facing me down or I never stumbled across it at a, you know, thrift store or anything like that. So it's one that I've always felt like I should see at some point, but well, this is the occasion to do that. Yeah, it looks like we've all come into this one blind, actually. I mean, I, I we're all familiar with Kevin Costner, of course, but I had never heard of this film prior to doing it on this podcast. So I guess that leads us into how this film came to be, Cam. Yeah, and actually, you know, we should note, we had an interview with uh, Ross and Marshall Thurber when we talked about Central um, Intelligence, and he cited this as his favorite spy film. So there you go. <laughs> So, you know, we had Nicholas Meyer recommending Little Drummer Girl and Ross and Marshall Thurber recommends No Way Out. Hopefully, uh, hope, well, I mean, I have watched this. I already know what my opinion is, but uh, hopefully it fares better than uh, The Little Drummer Girl. Mm, indeed. So how did this film come to be? That's a, a sort of a little bit of a complex question in terms of when all the participants joined, because it's kind of... This is one of those movies where there's not a lot of information online, so you kind of have to piece together the timeline. But ultimately, the source material for this film is a 1946 novel by Kenneth Fearing called The Big Clock. And um, this novel was adapted into a 1948 film starring Ray Milland. And I watched this movie actually last night so that I could comment on the differences between the two. Um, it's notable. I said that the synopsis, um, I very much appreciated the more uh, drawn out one because I actually posted about this. Um, original film on our Instagram and Twitter accounts. Um, we've been doing that lately. Whenever we watch a movie, you know, spy or not, we'll comment on it and kind of give a brief, you know, capsule review on our social media. And summing up the story of the big clock in like a sentence was really, really difficult. Like I had to, you know, take a couple cracks at it. <laughs> I, I I read that afterwards when you post it, and it. it... I mean, you're very good at eloquently putting what you want to say into, into small chunks. You've been doing reviews for a very long time. And I could tell that you still struggle to write that. Yeah, it's really difficult because you can kind of get it across from the point of view of your lead character, but then you've got to tie it all back to the boss character and it gets so convoluted. It's definitely not a one-sentence pitch movie um, or book, in, you know, in the case of the source material. So this uh, Milan film came out and... I guess just, you know, over the years, at a certain point, writer Robert uh, Garland, who was known, he mostly worked in TV before moving into, he did the movie The Electric Horseman, which was a uh, Robert Redford film. And then he did uncredited work on Tootsie and the Twilight Zone movie. Um, ultimately, he, at a certain point, adapted this, um, probably the film. I don't know if he was going back to the book, because ultimately, when you look at the credit on No Way Out, it says screen story and screenplay, which basically implies he really was just using it as an inspiration. But mm. so what happened was he wrote this screenplay, it seems, and it kind of just languished. It was just, you know, existing within um, the Orion Films kind of world. And they were looking to work with Kevin Costner. Kevin Costner had put out three films, Silverado, Fandango, and American Flyers, Three movies that got him noticed, but they were all box office underperformers. But Orion Pictures head Mike Metavoy saw them, uh, saw Fandango, and was like, we've got to build a film around this guy. And it's right at that point where Kevin Costner is about to take off. He is signed on to do The Untouchables. The movie's not out yet, though. So they're like, okay, we want to work with Kevin Costner. What does he want to do? And Kevin Costner said, um, No Way Out wasn't going to be made by anybody. 
Orion wanted to make a picture with me, and I wouldn't make anything they had at that point. I had read the script, and I thought it was kind of interesting. It didn't smack of a mega hit, but it did remind me of why I like movies. They read it and said, okay. <laughs> it's, it's interesting that he was the one who made it happen. Because if his star wasn't that big at the time, they must have seen a lot of promise in him. I mean, obviously, well-founded, knowing what he went on to do. But uh, yeah, that, that does show that they trusted him. I feel like probably there was a certain amount of awareness this guy was a rising star and just hadn't connected yet. And I would guess that Orion, knowing that he was signed on for The Untouchables, you know, the latest Brian De Palma film, it's probably like, ooh, this guy may be about to break. Let's Let's get him on a star vehicle. Because... Notably, when they made this movie, they didn't release it um, for a little while. They actually held it back until after Untouchables came out because they weren't completely sure if they could sell it on Kevin Costner. What would you do if that didn't work? Well, you're still going to release it, but you might put it out yeah. at maybe a quieter time of year. It's not going to have a big, you know, notable release date, probably. I, I will say something against this idea of giving him no way out. Not to, uh, not to allude to my thoughts on the film. It's a hell of a confusing story to be sort of launching a leading man. Yeah. I mean, it is, but it's also that era where they made a lot of smart adult entertainment. Um, and major studios did this. They don't do that anymore. Back in the day, adults went to movies to watch adults, and nowadays they go to watch teenager movies. <laughs> We're all just cheering at Avengers, assemble, yay! Yeah. Nowadays, that's, that's the best we can hope for. Yeah, it really is. And I mean, you'll get a lot of adults will run out to see, uh, you know, say like uh, just a random example. They did the Halloween reboot fairly recently, and that was a big hit. Or uh, the It adaptations. But, you know, horror tends to fall into that it's really appealing to teenagers as well. Like, you don't get a lot of adults running out now to see mid-budget, um, you know, adult-driven, in this case, like espionage stories. No, I think they've, they've well, I wouldn't say they've fallen by the wayside, but there's far less of these sort of espionage thrillers than there were in the... I felt like there were in the 60s and 70s from looking back on our list of films. Yeah. Like, I feel like now they go to Netflix. They go to Amazon. They're more of streaming films. They're not things you're going to drop into 4,000 theaters over a weekend. Well, just look at The Courier. Mm. Yeah, 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 for sure. Or um, Without Remorse as well. Mm. Yeah, although I think that one was intended for theaters, but it made a lot of sense as an Amazon release. So... Ultimately, um, Roger Donaldson joined the production to direct. Um, he was an Australian director, and he had worked on you know some notable films in the past. He did The Bounty, which was a remake of uh, Mutiny on the Bounty. That film starred Anthony Hopkins and Mel Gibson. And um, he'd also made a movie called Marie, which I wasn't familiar with, starring Sissy Spacek. He's one of these journeyman directors. You've seen some of the things he's done over the years. He did like Species. He did The Recruit, the Al Pacino film we'll tackle on the show as well as The November Man with Pierce Brosnan, which we will also tackle on this show. So we will have more Roger Donaldson in the future. I'm looking forward to The November Man. I always hear things about it, uh, mm. but I've never actually watched it. So Roger Donaldson, despite the pedigree of this film, you know, we've got the big clock, we've got the original novel, we've got the film with Ray Milland. Roger Donaldson thought this was an original script all through production. And that tells you that they didn't view this as a remake really at all. And Roger Donaldson said he ran into Mel Gibson at a party. And Mel Gibson said to him, oh, I heard you made a remake of The Big Clock. And that was when Roger Donaldson learned this was a remake of The Big Clock. <laughs> so no one said to him at any point, oh, you're doing this. 
I, I guess hey, not. Hey, watch uh, this. Like, is that not what assistants are for? Yeah, I mean, um, the writer, um, Robert Garland, um, he was a producer on this film, so maybe maybe he wanted to sell it as an original. Maybe he's like, I'm a genius. Isn't this great? <laughs> not a bad idea. <laughs> and plus, they change it so much that it probably is more of an original. All they really take, I'll say, is the basic framework of a character having to investigate a murder that... Um, would implicate him because it's sort of a frame job. Like, that is basically what they take from the original. Everything else is stripped out. Like, the original's not a spy story. It's about a crime reporter working at, like, a crime magazine. Um, he's not aware there's been a murder until, like, halfway through the movie or something. Originally, he's just being duped to, f to find out who this other guy could be. Um, it, it is a very different... Um, take on the material so much so I kind of understand the screen story by the screenwriter of this film. So kind of akin to Thunderball becoming uh, Never Seen Ever Again where they're going to use some of the bits basically. Yeah, it's like if you watch the two back to back, which I actually did last night, they're recognizable in moments but it's only kind of the important structural elements that you need. You know, you need the two men to see each other in the dark. You need basically the Kevin Costner character leading the investigation. Um, that's sort of the gist of what they take from it. I'm, I'm glad for me and Andy that we didn't have to have watched the first version to really get this version by the sounds of it. Yeah, although I will say the original is really good. I really, really enjoyed the original. <laughs> what, did you have to rent it or can you find it on like YouTube or where, whereabouts is it? I actually rented it off YouTube. They do just, you know, the four ninety nine rental or whatever. Mm. Okay. Anything else mm -hmm. for us, Cam? Um, yeah, just in terms of um, casting, I can say that the the notable story was Will Patton. Um, he was a fairly you know young and up and coming actor at this point. Roger Donaldson was, I guess, eyeing him potentially for a role, and Will Patton got him front row seats to see a play that he was starring in. And Roger Donaldson attended the play, sat the front in the front row, and promptly fell asleep through the play. And when he woke up. <laughs> he saw Will Patton kind of looking down at him and he realized he had to give him the role. <laughs> <laughs> I love Hollywood sometimes. <sighs> the other notable thing is the original script title for this was Finished with Engines. Do you have any idea what that means? Andy? Uh, you got me there. <laughs> I, I, was trying, I was throwing it to you to, to try and cover up. But like, I was yeah, just I... trying to... Um... Link it maybe to, to to. I was just trying to maybe link that to the subplot of the 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 uh, invisible submarine that they're trying to head off. I don't know, you know. So I don't know. <laughs> Are you with me on that? Yeah, maybe uh, the um, maybe the Gene Hackman character is finished with engines. <laughs> That's the closest I think we're going to get, Andy. Yeah, you know, the congressman wants this, this project done and Gene Hackman's trying to stop it. I don't know. I think, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we're going to figure this one out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this movie had a uh, budget of $15 million. Domestically, it did $36 million, so it more than doubled its budget. I don't think they released it overseas because I could not find overseas numbers anywhere for this movie. Um, but ultimately, at the worldwide box office, even without those uh, international numbers, it did reasonably well. It landed at number 32, 
right between Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, and Summer School, the Mark Harmon comedy. It's a good company to be in, I suppose. I guess. Or not. I don't know. Well, I, don't, I haven't seen Summer School, but Superman 4 is uh, not Christopher Reeve's proudest moment on screen. I, I can't say I've seen it, but I'll, I'll trust you on that one, Cam. You haven't seen Superman 4? Really? Oh, sorry. No, I thought you meant the Summer School one. I've seen Superman 4, unfortunately. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah that's, uh, it might be a quest for peace, but uh, yeah, they'll never find peace with that film. Jesus. <laughs> not a quest for quality. <laughs> that's where it goes bad. Becomes bad Superman, doesn't he? Uh, no, that's, no that's, that's Superman 3. That's, that's... Oh, is that Superman 3? Oh. Yeah, 4 is when he fights the sun, dude. No. And, and throws all the nukes into the sun. No. It's, it's bad. It's, it's like a budget <laughs> yeah. Superman film. It's propped up by Christopher Reeve. Right. Uh-oh. And that's it. Yeah. So the, the top three for the year, number one was Fatal Attraction. Number two was Beverly Hills Cop 2. Number three was Dirty Dancing, and a few other notables. At number four, we had The Living Daylights, the uh, you know the Bond film of that year. Number seventy-eight, we had The Fourth Protocol with uh, Michael Caine, and notably, number ten for the year was The Untouchables. So big year for um, Kevin Costner, and the next year he would do Bull Durham, and from that point on, the world was his oyster. You know, we're gonna head into Dances with Wolves and all that sort of stuff. So this is his coming out year, basically. Yeah, 87 is the year that Kevin Costner launches. Mm. Okay, I could buy it. it it's, he's one of the, well, maybe the best thing about this film. Not to spoil my thoughts, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, I, I'm going to throw it out to everyone to get their thoughts on the film, but I want to tell everyone a little story first about my experience watching this film. Are, are you sitting comfortably? I am. Okay, so sometimes when I watch these films, I have trouble sourcing them. Now, I know Andy actually went out of his way to buy the Blu-ray. Yeah. Uh, well done. I I didn't. And sometimes, you know, you have to use your spy network to find certain <laughs> copies through nefarious means, Let's shall we say. Um, the problem with that sometimes is the connections aren't good or they'll send you to the wrong film, which leads me into what happened with this movie. Mm-mm. So I got about 10 minutes in after, well, I'll, I'll say 10 minutes. It felt like an hour watching those credits at the beginning. Um, I got about 10 minutes of the film where he's at the party, he's schmoozing around, and then the link cut out, so I had to find a new link. And I loaded up the next link, and I, you know, it looked about the same film, the quality looked the same. And I was like, I, I didn't know Lawrence Fishburne was in this film. It was in German. No, no, no. No, no, no. And and then, like, Giancarlo Esposito turns up. I'm like, what's Giancarlo Esposito doing in this film? I didn't see him on IMDb. <laughs> I, I, I let it play out for, like, 15 minutes. And, then, you know, there's these... There's, they're, they're in this, like, a university, I think. And they're, like... There's, like, a human centipede at one moment. And I was, I was very confused. I was like, where did Kevin Costner go? And then it, I actually, like, stopped and Googled the people. And it turned out I'd watched 15 minutes of Spike Lee's School Days. <laughs> <laughs> very different film <laughs> I, I can confirm it's a very different film <laughs> yes I was utterly confused I thought you were going to say you w- were watching the um, other version of there's a movie called No Way Out with uh, Richard Widmark and Sidney Poitier I thought you were going to say you downloaded that and were watching that for like 15 minutes or something 
No, I, I was full on watching uh, like a high school drama made by Spike Lee in 1988. <laughs> well, I hear it's good. I, t- I tell you what, I don't reckon you miss much for the first 15 minutes. What do you reckon, Cal? Oh, well, mm, yeah, I don't... You know what I mean? It's weird. <laughs> it's weird. We'll, we'll yeah. get to that in a second. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Let's, let, well, okay, I, I've given everyone my fun story. <laughs> let's, let's, let, let's, let's get into our thoughts. So, a- a- Andy, you seem to be linking into what you think about it. So why don't you lead us off? Uh, what did you think of No Way Out? Well, as I say, I really, from the first tracking shot, which was, which was a, the view over the capital from a from a chopper like you say that lasted seemed to last about 10 minutes but it zoomed into this suburban house and then we we saw a a bit of a snippet really of an interrogation of kevin costner in 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 his naval uniform and then really um there was like the the basic backstory of of this little bit of romance but it just seemed between him and sean and uh, it, it just seemed really, it was all the worst parts of the 1980s, really, you know? Hmm. Finish, finishing with, like, you know, them fumbling around in the back of a limousine, you know? Um, and, it, you know, it, it really took off for me. I, don't, I mean, I don't know how, how far I'm to go with this, but where, where the actual incident happens um, uh, between uh, Hackman and Sean, you know, when when that incident happens, then it took off. But before then, I was thinking, what what are these spy hards? What have you done? To, what are you doing to me? <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, you know, I, I was I was looking for a way out myself. I couldn't find a way out. You know, but um, but when when the incident happened, when the incident happened, it it really took off. You know, even before then, I was looking at Costner. I was thinking, my goodness me, you know, for about ten years in in in. In, in the early 90s, he was firing a flaming arrow at us with everything he, do, he does, he does it for you, you know? And uh, mm. and and all his his, uh, his his achievements. But it all just seemed really forced and clunky. But when the incident happened off the balcony, it really kicked in for me. And I, and, uh, I, I did enjoy it from that point. I thought, you know, in a nutshell, I really, really enjoyed it. I thought it was great. And, and what you said earlier, Scott, about it, where it would sit, in that kind of espionage uh, boom of the 70s. I don't think it would sit there at all because it, it, one thing about this film, it doesn't really have any of those uh, uh, glamorous elements of, a, of an espionage film, does it? It doesn't really have any extensive fight scenes or, or anything, really. It's quite sort of um, kind of realistic, if you like, to some degree. Yeah, I, I mean, if I was drawing comparisons, I would probably say this is yeah. more akin to the the 70s paranoia films, you know, the three days of the Condor and such. Yeah. Especially when that, as you say, that moment happens. Yeah, exactly. Warren Beatty there, yeah. Especially when that happens where uh, Sean Young's character is killed. That's where the movie for me really starts. Yeah. That's right. Um, Cam, what did you think? Oh, for me, I went into this one, uh, obviously I've had a certain amount of hype just because, you know, Ross and Marshall Thurber was a big fan of this one. So I'm like, okay, cool. And I knew about the Ebert review. In this movie, <laughs> it very much embodies the 80s. And mm. when it comes to kind of the smart, adult-driven storytelling, the movie really grabbed me. And yeah. I will say, like, the first half you're talking about, which is more the the courtship between the Kevin Costner and Sean Young, it's very 80s. 
it has that sort of streak of the 80s erotic thriller kind of vibe. Like, there's so much, like, delving into, like, erotic material in 80s movies. Um, so common. If I could feel that streak of that here going on. But what I kind of liked was how playful it was. Like, it actually made me more interested in the characters. They were very, you know, likable together. It got me on board for the relationship so that when things took the twist, I was fully on board and I understood why he was so torn up about the whole incident. Um, to me, like, everything to do with Kevin Costner having to go on this witch hunt for this um, fabled mole within the CIA... I thought was fantastic. Like it really had me on the edge of my seat. Yeah. There's some very eighties moments. Um, we have like, you know, there's some chases and action scenes that feel maybe added to kind of wake the audience up. It's kind of that fear of, uh Oh, we might be losing some of the people in the audience, but by and large, I found it really just absorbing and a lot of fun to watch. It's not a movie that's heavy or it's going to feel like homework to sit and watch. It actually is really fun and engaging. Um, there's some things that don't work for me. You know, there's some bookends and some various other elements that I kind of just rolled my eyes. Or there's some very 80s things. You know, the score is... Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of 80s synth scores I love. This is not one of them. But by and large, I thought it was a lot of fun. If I was going to to give it my quick thoughts, I think overall it's it's a very enjoyable film. I think the plot is really interesting, especially the twists and turns right towards the end, which we'll get to. But I, it is bogged down a little bit for me by that first 40 minutes. Mm. And that's not to say that, like, I, I think Sean Young is dynamite in this film. Yeah. She is having a blast, and well, it certainly looks like she is anyway, until she dies. But it, it just feels like they're going through the motions of having a relationship. It doesn't, I, I'm not really connected to the story of them having a relationship. I frankly don't care. Yeah, I mean... You're expected to buy in on this very quickly, where they meet at a uh, like a party, and it cuts like after like what thirty yeah. seconds of conversation to a sex scene in the back of a limo. Well, that's how we met, Cam. <laughs> no, no, I was the limo driver who was watching. <laughs> <laughs> but that that scene's definitely a candidate for the Bad Nookie Award, I think, though you know, or whatever it is, definitely. <laughs> well. I'm I'm glad we got to this scene and took a moment to talk about it because it 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 personifies everything about eighties movies that I find both fascinating and annoying. I mean, like they're getting down dirty in the back seat of a limousine. That's all fine. The soundtrack at that point is like some sexy slow jazz. That's fine. No, I mean, no, Scott, it does... it's not. It's not. It's actually a romantic oh, ballad <laughs> called No Way Out. You're right. It was a song written for the film. You're completely right. And, but and then like you get like because she says like drive drive us around the the monuments, and so you like you know they're getting down and dirty and you you get a shot of like the Washington Memorial, yeah. Like I'm like oh, okay, very phallic, very uh, fair enough. And then like you've got um what's the name of the limousine driver? Bill, Bill the chauffeur, and yeah he's you got him like just smiling and looking in the back of the the, the, the mirror to watch him making out, and it's, you know you just think this is supposed to be a serious spy film. And you've got you know the No Way Out song, and this guy like smiling while two kids are making out the back of their va- the back of his like limousine. Strange stuff. Did you think he was going to crash? <laughs> that no. would have made sense with the tone at that point. Yeah, you, you get like ooh, 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 ooh. I thought he was going to crash. Yeah, yeah. It felt very like Hot Shots. 
Where like you'd see him like get another mirror or something, or like just like turning backwards to drive or something. It's so of that era though, where these movies would have a um fairly explicit sex scene, and they would market the hell out of it. Like that's what you know, movies like Fatal Attraction or Basic Instinct or all these movies of that sort of you know late eighties, early nineties were constantly going back to, and like that felt like that was the case here. Um, I you know stumbled across an old interview from nineteen eighty seven with Kevin Costner. And it's so weird to read because they're like, this fresh-faced young, you know, go-getter is going to take Hollywood by the horns. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah, well, he did pretty well, actually, in the next handful of years. But um, they just bring up that sex scene almost immediately in the interview. And he's like, yep, you know, these are the things you get to do as an actor and all that sort of stuff. Like, kind of just kind of playing it off. But you could tell that the press was like, we have to talk about that scene. Even the even the cover of the of the Blu-ray. I mean, I don't know if there were different covers, but it 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 just seems to be seems to be being marketed that way, doesn't it? You know, like you say, like a, a more more like a romantic uh, film as opposed to a spy film, really. You know. Well, I wonder too when they were marketing this movie, do they want to sell it yeah. as that because? Maybe they want to conceal what the movie is ultimately going to be about. So you're going to sell up front the whole Sean Young, you know, Kevin Costner, two very attractive actors and the heat between them. That makes a lot of sense to me in terms of a marketing uh, choice. Well, it does sort of pull the rug out from you because you expect her to be in the whole film. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 She's you know, not top billing. She's what, third listed on, uh, above Will Patton. You think, oh, she's, she's staying through to the end. But, you know, she's off at the 40 minute mark. Yeah, and I'll say that in the original film, um, that character, the mistress character, is very much a supporting character who the the lead just sort of connects with over a mutual dislike of in you know in this case like the Gene Hackman character, um, and they go out for like a drunken night where they're just basically coming up with schemes to like make the boss's life miserable, um, and then she's killed. So it's not like this deep personal connection that the lead has with the female character who's murdered. So I actually think that is somewhat of an improvement here. And I thought, you know, when you have the moment where Kevin Costner finds out she's been murdered and excuses himself to go to the bathroom and like kind of collapse, I thought that was actually really effective and added a little more tension to that whole search. Yeah, I mean, I don't have the comparison to the original, but I I feel like it was a good choice. Uh, I would, I mean, I would like to see as much Sean Young in a film as I can, but I feel like killing her gave the gave the film attention that it didn't have until that point. And then Kevin Costner finding out that way and, and also the, the concept that it, he could be the one blamed. And also like her presence hangs over the movie from that point forward. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say so. I, I will just, I, I just want to touch back on that limousine and, and throw a question out real quick before we move hmm. on. I mean, I've, I've, I've been in a few cars with, with, with people and, you know, uh-oh. It could get hot and heavy. But uh-oh. I I've never once wanted to have uh, you know uh fun times in the back of someone else's vehicle whilst they're driving it. I could not think of anything worse. Your thoughts? Well, I there's like a <laughs> a I don't even know what to make of this kind of like free-spirited sexuality in this movie because you have that followed by like them going back to her friend's house and kicking her friend out of her apartment so they can use her room. So like, I I don't know what's up with this couple. They're living wild, man. Tell you what, I tell you what, Cam as well. Just as uh, related to to this, I mean this this was 1987, yeah, and even even Bond. 
had to had to change his ways a little due to the to the the epidemic that was underway at that time mm-hmm. yeah and um some some at some part later on in the film where they're doing the investigation they're getting very forensic and and it's like it, it's kind of strange that that they didn't really address that at all you know as i say even bond had to have the one girlfriend in the living daylights as opposed to the three or four and so on and so forth but um like you say it's just like um it's it's in its own bubble you know it's not really reflecting that kind of uh situation at all is it or as it was what do you think to that yeah i i never thought of that actually i i never thought of that connection uh that's that's really fascinating because you've also got uh well, you've got Will Patton's character yeah. who is is gay. Yeah, yeah, and I I'm surprised that wasn't a I'm surprised it wasn't mentioned actually. They they could have possibly have made some sort of a um, have made it a lot more interesting if they I mean it'd be very risque I guess back then but if they'd have kind of alluded some sort of connection between uh, Farrell or Costner and him, hence this kind of sort of jealous love triangle or or this kind of duress manipulation uh, but maybe you know i mean the times it was in that that would probably be would just be too much you know with the, the stakes of you know, so much money being involved in hollywood and, and so on and so forth you know it's like sort of saying that with a man being there you know i imagine to myself what if the what if the roles were changed if a man was the uh, was the love interest and then sean young was the friend you know but um, because she did, have you seen, uh, I know, I'm sorry, I'm digressing, but have you seen the film version of The Human Factor? No, I haven't. Uh, which is the film of the Graham Greene spy novel. Well, um, Iman stars in that. You know, she, she is one of the main characters in that. Frank Castle, who's the main the character, he, she plays his South African wife. And bizarrely, in this, they they state that she's South African as well, don't they? You know. But yeah, I'm 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 pivoting and digressing, you know. So, you know, just just food for thought there. Yeah. No, no, no. Um, well, it's interesting you mentioned about the connection with with Will Patton and and Kevin Costner's characters because one of my early notes, right back to the scene where you first sort of meet them at the the inaugural ball. Is you know I wish uh, someone looked at me like Will Patton looks at Kevin Costner. Yeah. Mm, yeah, and also the way that Will Patton looks at Gene Hackman as well. Like there's a connection there as well. And actually, in the original, I did feel a bit of a connection between the uh, the boss character and the underling who are involved in this nefarious deed. Like mm. it's there under the surface, but here it's much more explicit. And I, I thought it was pretty effective. Like I thought Will Patton the way his character gets more and more unhinged as the movie goes yeah. and he's so like clean and put together and by the end his hair's like sticking up and he looks like just totally unhinged i thought it was really effective i am um, i mean there's a point that we we spoke about this and we've kind of spoke up to this point where the film changes and that's obviously at the point that sean young's character dies and that's where it seems to have got interesting for me and andy i know cam seems to be more of a fan throughout but at the point where that changes there's instantly just way more tension in the film. Yeah. And I think this is where the film shifts more towards genius level. And I really enjoyed it from then on in. But I, I do think it was bogged down at the start. Hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, I can totally understand that. I was more, in, I was embracing the eightiesness of it. And Costner's acting for me then took off as well. Like I said before, he, he just seemed it, it, they, they, to me. I mean, Cam liked it, but for me, they, they were almost like siblings. Really, I, I didn't see any any uh, tension or any uh, chemistry between Sean Young and. Uh, do you know what I mean? I, I just you know, it, it was a bit lost on me that really, you know. Um, but as I say, when when she when she went off the balcony. That was it. We are off. That's it. You know, that's it. It was it, off. It went. Yeah. World's most powerful slap by uh, Gene Hackman there. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even know how she got over the banister to the floor. I never really understood the geography of that. But did she climb over it? I can't remember. And I think she sort of think he he went to hit her and she stumbled. Then so she like backwards somersaults away. Fair enough. Yeah. Maybe Gene Hackman just has really strong hands. Or <laughs> really bad breath, you know? <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> but then, then obviously we move on to the investigation half of this film. And that's where, you know, I'd say, I mean, much as Kevin Costner is a spy throughout, I'd say his spy work increases at that point because he's he's playing more or less two different characters. Um, I mean, what did you guys think of that second half of the film? I totally enjoyed it, you know, the pursuit and the way that the tension got ramped up when they brought the witnesses in later on. I mean, what would that be in the final third where the the final search, you know, where he's getting cornered? Um, Excellent, really. Yeah, Yeah, because the walls are slowly closing. That's right. Yeah, you've got the ticking time bomb of the photo, the the Polaroid that's developing. The photo, yeah. Or being like, yeah. I mean, that that might be the first ever use of Zoom and Enhance I've ever seen in film. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. So it's nice to know they had the technology in the 80s. Um, so you, yeah, you've got that time bomb. You've also got the Iman character who is slowly being investigated and he has to save her mm. for a really cool chase sequence that I really enjoyed. Yeah. I really enjoyed that too, although it feels, uh, it feels a little preposterous. But, but the thing is, he just scarpered. Yeah. It's probably the most outrageous part of the film. Once they crash, and it's like, that, that, that looked like a major freeway that's going to be out of action for God knows how long. And, um, but Costner just scarpers, doesn't he? You know, it's not like he, he's, you know, he's having little sort of um, fights and this, that and the other. He just basically does a runner, doesn't he? And then when he, when he, when he crawls, crawls onto that tree, I mean, it, it did look like him. You know, I don't know if it's a stump double or what, but it, you know, he crawls along that branch of the tree and then falls, you know, uh, splat onto his back, you know. Um, yeah, I, I don't know, you know. I wouldn't be surprised if he did a lot of his own stunts in this film because there's a lot of physical scenes that I felt like it was Kevin Costner. Mm. And I like that he's athletic looking without looking like, you know, a tank. Yes. Like, I buy it more that he's a guy who has to rely on smarts. He has to, you know, crash his car and then try to run away. But he's getting hurt. He's jumping over, you know, the fronts of cars and then hitting the ground. And I like that they aren't trying to just, you know, pit him off against these two assassins in a fist fight, yeah. you know, on equal ground where he can just take them both down. And it's like, oh, yeah, no problem. Just dust my hands off. Like, I like that exactly. these yeah. two assassins, there is a menace level to them and that he has to rely on these sorts of tactics. Yeah. And and they are going to kill a man, aren't they? They're not going to mess about, you know. Oh, totally, yeah. And like, actually, it was funny because one of the assassins was played by 
Um, the guy who played Quato in Total Recall. Uh, and so that always made me laugh whenever he showed up. He was the one with the, the lighter hair. <laughs> I suppose I want to move on to the big twist. Uh, actually, the big twists, plural. Mm. There's, I mean, there's two that jump out to me right at the end, which took me by surprise. I know, Cam, you've obviously saw the original film, so I don't know how much that spoiled the twist for you. Are you talking about the book ending twist? Uh, the, well, the, the, the final book ending twist, but also what happened to Will Patton's character. Um, okay, so the, the book ending twist um, is not in the original at all. That's invention for this film. The Will Patton... Okay, so in the original, what happens is the um, it's actually an interesting uh, shift here, where in this film, the Gene Hackman character, the the um, Secretary of Defense, who is who has murdered Sean Young's character, he's much more of a guy who's just losing control and seems panicked, and he's a very weak man. And it's Will Patton who's the very much the dominant personality in this. Mm. In the original, um, Charles Lawton plays the boss character, the um, you know the the head of the magazine. And he is the puppet master. Like, he is a very evil, nefarious character. And he's more using his lackey to cover his tracks. And at the end, it's similar where he's going to set the lackey up to go to prison for him. And then the lackey turns on him. Um, Here, it's a little different where Will Patton is the one who's very much steering the ship throughout most of the film. Okay, I... I... I kind of like that twist, actually. So the in the original, the Will Patton lackey, as you say, turns Gene Hackman in? Or is that still left to our Kevin Costner? Well, what happens is, yeah, he's more of just like a sniveling kind of suck-up who wants to get in good with the boss. And once he's about to be sent up the river, he turns on the boss and is like, hey, hey, hey. But uh, believe me, gunshots do go off. Does someone kill themselves? Uh, no, there's no suicide. Okay. So that, I mean, of the two twists... That one made me kind of go like, I didn't see it coming, but I knew someone would get shot because why would you have the gun in the scene? Sure. So your money would be on Bryce getting shot, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that's that's where my money was in that scene. But obviously, you know, uh, spoilers, but we're <laughs> spoiling the film. Will Patton's character shoots himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't, I didn't see that coming. I never really understood if it was, and I've watched this twice, if he was killing himself because of the assertion that he was jealous, so it was like a shameful thing, or he was doing it to sort of cover up for Gene Hackman because he said he would die for him. I think he's covering up for Gene Hackman, but it's also a certain amount of, um, he's so loyal to the Gene Hackman character throughout, like unwaveringly. Mm. And I think there's a certain amount of just like, he's kind of broken by the fact Gene Hackman's willing to just sell him up the river because he's been so like he feels like i think that they're operating on equal footing with each other and the fact that gene hackman will take the opportunistic path of just selling this guy out for his own crimes i think that kind of breaks him yeah he's like the guy you know if you if you've seen the the new iteration of house of cards you know the house of cards series the kevin spacey yeah, yeah. netflix show yeah that thing's dog something who's like the aide to kevin spacey and his wife and it's the same kind of um, yes. total, yes, yes, yeah, yes. the total um, devotion of the aide, isn't it, to the to the to the main person, really? Yeah, he's like he's Kevin Spacey's body guy in the in the film. Basically, he 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 knows where all the bodies yes. are buried, and he he is the person who sort of cleans up after Kevin yeah. Spacey. So yeah, there, there's definitely a similarity with those characters. I would say, if we're going to talk about the final twist, 
I suppose we probably need to set it up a little bit for those who haven't watched it necessarily, although I would recommend <laughs> watching it first. So it's it's a little bit convoluted, and that's probably one of the problems of this film I want to get to in a minute. But, so, once Gene Hackman's character has killed Sean Young, they, they decide they're going to blame it on this uh, supposed Russian spy called Yuri, <laughs> who is undercover in the Pentagon. A mole. The mole, exactly, yeah. Um, during their investigation, they talk a lot about Yuri, and, and the, Yuri's kind of their scapegoat because they could just pretend anyone's Yuri and kill that person. Right. And so, you know, Kevin Costner is in the race against time to prove it was, you know, Gene Hackman that killed Sean Young. And it all gets resolved when Will Patton's character shoots himself. And then you get a sort of a... An additional scene that ties onto the beginning scene that Andy spoke about, where he's back in the interrogation room. But you find out that he's actually being interrogated by fellow Russians, <laughs> and he is, in fact, Yuri. A Russian. And, and you're just sat. Yeah, and they're talking in this sort of. Um, and Kevin Costner's Russian accent's a bit questionable. Yeah. But uh, that blew my mind. Uh, in terms of, like, spy twists, this has now overtaken the cloak and dagger twist yeah. for me. Uh, uh, first off, I just want to say I'm insulted that you are putting down Kevin Costner's Russian accent. The man is clearly a master of dialects, given his work in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. <laughs> yes, he's from Nottingham, me duck. What are you talking about? Anyway, carry on. <laughs> but yeah, what a twist. Okay, does this twist work at all? Like, it feels like it was maybe added after the fact because it's a real head-scratcher. Well, it, it could have easily been shot afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I will say I was a little distracted. The, the, the bald, heavyset guy who's interrogating him is one of the goons in the movie Darkman, so I kept having flashbacks <laughs> to Darkman. But um, this whole, like, twist... Okay, so, like... It <laughs> it ends with him being like, okay, I'm a Russian spy. And doesn't he also imply that the whole seduction of Sean Young was part of the mission? Yeah. Yeah, yeah he says, the mission you told me to do was seduce her. Yeah, That's yeah. Right. So we start to, like, chart back throughout the course of this film. Like, does, does the movie support this twist? Not when you watch it the second time, which I did. Yeah, because, Scott, you're the best person to ask because you watched it twice. It's kind of like, you know, if you watch The Sixth Sense, you find out the twist with um, Bruce Willis. You go back and rewatch that movie. The movie very much supports everything that the movie's building to. When you went back the second time, what was the experience like looking at it through the point of view of Kevin Costner, knowing he is a Russian um, mole? Well, I have to preface. Once I watched it the first time and saw that scene, I went, Huh? And then immediately went to IMDb and uh, Wikipedia to try and figure out exactly what they just said. Yeah. And what the implication of that is. So I was kind of confused, but I, that cleared it up a little bit. So then I went back to my second viewing like a day later. And it doesn't really do what, you know, Sixth Sense is a great example, actually, of one of those, you know, M. Night Shyamalan twists where they, he sets it up. He leaves little like red herrings throughout the film. You know, this doesn't do any of that. He, you, know, you see him turn up to the party. He doesn't seek her out. He turns up to the party at the start, sees her, and they start flirting. But that's that's completely innocuous. I mean, you could ask why he turned up, because he sent that Christmas card to Will Patton's character, and that got him the invite to the party. So maybe that was a red hit, like one of the flags? 
Possibly. I think there's a real problem with the ending in that it ends with him not wanting to go back to Russia. And he's kind of this, you know, man without a country wandering out to sad music. We get this overhead shot of him. And it's like, okay, you've just pulled the rug out from under the audience at the very end as to who this character is. I don't know where he is emotionally. Like, I don't understand really because everything's been a smokescreen for two hours. So, like, I don't know what to take away from him not wanting to go back to Russia because it's very difficult to really assign any sort of motive to him throughout the movie because ultimately I don't know that it's supported by this twist. Well, it, the twist itself has a, a stink of like hot shotting. Right. And I don't mean hot shots the movie, but just like hot shotting a story idea. Like what can we do to make this like punch it up? Oh, he's a mole. Great. Okay. But you don't necessarily think it through. And I can see that, but it also just, if you just take it as a, you don't ever watch it again and you just take the surprises like oh that was interesting i didn't see that coming then maybe it does work but but doesn't the doesn't the landlord um like 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 cam was just saying about the um with the sixth sense that or, or, or you scott sorry that that it was supported when you wound it back you know when the you know the, the scene with the ring and things like that but the landlord being the being behind the mirror and then coming out and ending the interrogation doesn't that tie in that it, it was actually part of the whole, um, the whole plot, you know, um, uh, Costner's landlord, the artist, he was the interrogator, wasn't he? I mean, you, you could say that is a connection, but it also just could be that he was the guy playing the landlord. Like it doesn't necessarily mean that he was his handler. Mm. There's a couple of other. I mean, I did some deep dives after my second watch. There's a couple of other nods. At one point, he orders um, he orders vodka. Oh, okay. But he says to the bar, he says to the bartender, "Stolly, straight up." Yeah. Now, "Stolly" is short for Stolichnaya, which is a a Russian brand of vodka. Mm. So there is that. So you could argue again. Maybe they did set it up. Uh, the other part also is when the the guy from the the that rented him the boat. You know, when they get him in. And um, and they they basically say you know well what's he look like and he kind of says oh he's average he's average he's like a, you know he didn't literally say he's a grey man did he whereas really I mean Costa's not he could have said oh yeah he's five foot ten slim in a in a naval officer's uniform with blonde hair you know <laughs> but uh, <laughs> he, he implied that he was this kind of very ordinary very anonymous average grey man character didn't he which which is it really, in truth, an ideal uh, uh, operative, you know? So maybe that was teeing it up a bit. I don't know. I mean, I often describe uh, Kevin Costner as bland. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's cold, Scott. That's he, real he, cold. He's as milk toast as they get. Like, he blends right into the background, that man. <laughs> in the 1980s, there was no more high wattage, you know, sex symbol superstar than Kevin Costner. What a different era, right? Yeah. And I mean, you got to give the uh, Russians real props in this movie for finding the most like all-American guy they could ever find. <laughs> well, this is this is where the the twist falls down because they they says like I I've forgotten what Russian sounds like mm. to his handler, the yeah. landlord. Yeah. And so you just think like how long has he been embedded? And what is his mission? He's probably a sleeper. Like, he doesn't want to go back to Russia. How long has he been in since, the... Since he was five years old. Well, potentially. Like, has he been in the Navy? Like Conan Molody or somebody like that. He's probably a sleeper, you know? Um... Sure, but I don't know. Like, 
at that point, where, where is your is your allegiance even with Russia at that point? One would question. The, the, the other thing is that with with Yuri eliminated as well, he's got every. Uh, I mean, the guy was wanting to send him send him back to Russia, but he's got he's got every uh, chance to operate con- and carry on with impunity, hasn't he? Because they think they've eliminated them all. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, he. So why did why are they why did they want to send him back to Russia? Because Yuri's dead. Nobody's looking for Yuri anymore. He just get, carries on. He did assault a federal officer. Oh right. So I'm sure he could be reprimanded yeah. for that. Yeah. Would he have maintained that job close to the Secretary of Defense? Also, like I, probably not. Doubtful. No, he's going to get stationed in Antarctica somewhere. And and there's the photograph as well. Yeah. Isn't there? There's a photograph. You know, like what you know, what would be yes. that's linking him to the to, in some way to this to to Sean Young, isn't it? I'm I'm sure you could say he's you know doing conduct that would bring the navy into disrepute by sleeping with her, mm. or I'm sure there's some sort of you know silly charge they could come up with to you know discharge him if they wanted to. So I don't know if he's necessarily safe in America either. Coming back to the beginning of 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 the film, Scott, do you think that the the scene on the boat it, it could have been cut out altogether. It was unnecessary. Where he, he, you know, he goes to rescue this guy and risks his life. Then the team come out and rescue the guy. You know, I could, I could argue either way. I mean, does it make sense in the end? Does it, you know, does it make sense for the plot? Not particularly. Does it serve a purpose mm. of building up your hero as a, a heroic person? Yes, it does do that. It also explains what gets him sort of across to the Gene Hackman character. Because when he first meets the, you know, the Gene Hackman, David Bryce character, Bryce just kind of like blows him off, like, whatever, very I don't care. Yeah, but it's decisive. that, you know, that news story about this rescue that kind of jogs his memory and makes him right, want to hire him on. Right, right, yeah, yeah, the hero. That's what he says, isn't it? I need a hero or something like that, didn't he? Yeah. That's it, yeah. Which I think leads into maybe one of our arguments is that this whole Yuri plot was added potentially afterwards or late in the game because this film could just work without it and it would still be quite good. Yeah, the original worked really well without it. Yeah. Well, okay, I want to move us on to maybe a couple of criticisms and one of those was, uh, which we've sort of been alluding to the entire time, is that this film's kind of complex and a little bit unapproachable. Is it? I don't know. Like, I found it because it had that sort of mainstream Hollywood 80s vibe that it actually was very welcoming. Like, I thought there's a a lot more impenetrable films we've watched that have more of like an icy reserve or something where it's kind of holding you at arm's length. This one just feels kind of like a glossy entertainment that's a lot smarter than you might expect. I I don't know. I I found it to have... My first viewing, I think, was kind of tough. I, I, I at times had to kind of stop and take stock of where I was. It, kind of the same experience I had with, say, Funeral in Berlin. Not that it's maybe as complex as Funeral in Berlin, but I felt like I was like, okay, what is he doing right now? Where, why is who is Yuri? What is I, I don't understand. And so I had to kind of stop and just gather my thoughts a couple of times, which is not something you can do in the cinema. What did you think, Andy? Uh. Didn't really. I didn't. That wasn't really my my feeling with it. It it, it seemed to gallop along, as I say, from from the death. Um, 
but I, I ask myself, like I said, I look at, I look at the, the design of the, the cover and, and everything and, and, and what a, you know, what a purple patch Costner went through really for four, probably five years, really. He, he really was the, 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 the man, wasn't he, for, for, for some time. And the fact that we, you know, we'd never heard of it, you know, I mean, it's, is that because there wasn't a, a really good soundtrack, a hit, a hit record attached to it? You know, do you do you know what I mean? You know, would Rob would Robin Hood of of, of <laughs> the No the, Way Out song? <laughs> yeah, but but would Rob but would would Robin Hood have been the film it was without bloody Brian Adams hmm? driving us mad for about ten years? You know, um, the pri- Hey, that's that's the pride of my country. Damn it! <laughs> With all due Actually, respect, I've got some trivia. I can't believe I get to throw this one out there. Did you know that I actually graduated from the same high school as Brian Adams? Wow. Really? Yeah, I did, yeah. I didn't even know that, and I've known you 10 years. Yeah, um, him and Jason Priestley were both from my high school. Did they ever come back and do, like, gigs? God, no. (laughs) Once they were out, they were out. (laughs) Well, when the feeling's right, you're going to run all night, aren't you? You know. (laughs) And actually... (laughs) My friend's mom actually went to high school with Brian Adams, and he asked her out, and she said, "No." <laughs> but sorry, Brian Adams. Uh, everyone turned out fine in the end. It, it's all good. But 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 to digress, what is that film, gentlemen? What is that? What what is that film that's got Sinatra in it? It's a Cold War spy film, The Naked Runner. Yes. Yeah, yeah, The Naked Runner. Um, and it's it's. I'm sure you'll review it at some time. But it's shot. It was shot by the guy that did your favourite, the one, the file film, yeah, <laughs> the one that's like the Scottish play that mm-hmm. we mustn't mention, the one about the file, yeah. It was shot by that guy. Yes. It's got the Dutch angles. Thank you, Andy. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> it's it's got the Dutch angles. It's got all that. I really enjoyed it. But you know what was missing from it? John Barry. That's probably why no one's ever heard of it. You know. So mm. you can't underestimate, can you, the power of a, a soundtrack? Sure. You know? No, and like Maurice Jor uh, did this score, and he, he he's he's great. Like, he did Lawrence of Arabia. The man has made some real masterworks of yeah. film composing, but this one, it's, you know, falling into that 80s trend of very synth-heavy, and, like, there's great stuff out there. You know, you look at, like, Brad Fidel's stuff in, like, say, the Terminator films or what Faltemeyer's doing on, like, Top Gun, for example. There's really strong synth scores of that era, but like this is not one of them. He's probably said to his son, "Son, can you just send me something over?" Mm, yeah, you know, Jean Michel, can you send me something over? <laughs> you know, send the B side over. <laughs> it it certainly doesn't stand out. It it does not stand out. This soundtrack, and I I don't know if he had any input with the No Way Out song, <laughs> um, but none of it worked. In terms of soundtrack, it was it was quite brutal at times. It is real. It's like the total Casio keyboard tinkling. Like it's just like <laughs> these really cheesy sounds while you're watching a scene that should be quite intense. Like I thought there was moments it sort of worked. I thought you know the opening credits which we touched on, which are quite long, where you're kind of just zooming over Washington. I thought it had like kind of an ominous tone that mm. I thought was fairly effective. Yeah. But like there are scenes where it's like. Um, you know, um, like a chase scene, and it sounds like a synth version of the Seinfeld theme. <laughs> Presets. Um, uh, yeah, it, it, it's. I mean, it doesn't work for me. I I did note down the soundtrack's pretty bad, but it um, 
it wasn't a thing that bugged me as much as say that it being slightly convoluted at times to me personally but did you guys ever have any other grievances cam did you have anything um i, I mean i thought this movie did ticking clocks quite well like i thought the it's not a grievance mm-hmm. but i thought the the ticking clocks of the printout of the um declarations of gifts um, you know, the database there that will reveal the jewelry box that Sean Young had that Gene Hackman gave her. I thought that was effective. I thought that the, um, the sequence with the photo was effective. So I like that the movie has ticking clocks. I think it like, when I mentioned the chase sequence and when I mentioned like him, you know, hiding in the vents and things like that, those are the moments like, I don't think you need them. Like they feel a little bit like we've got to kind of goose the audience. They may be thinking, you know, I want some action. I want some action. And I think they're fine in terms of execution, but I don't know that they're necessary. Like some of them felt a little eighties preposterous to me and they didn't quite blend as well with this story of this guy trying to cover his tracks and, you know, lead an investigation. Did you feel like there was too much going on then? Like it was too cluttered? Uh, No, I didn't think it was too cluttered. It's just that it's, um, it's throwing in, I felt like just kind of, 80s action beats just to kind of keep the audience awake yeah did you think that gene hackman was a little bit phoned in yeah i'm glad you brought him up actually okay so when i watched the original charles lawton is incredible in the original like he is probably the most dynamic performance in the movie and so I kind of, you know, I've seen Gene Hackman in like Unforgiven. I've seen him in lots of things, French Connection. Mm. Gene Hackman is a super intense actor um, a lot of the time. And so I'm like, perfect casting. If you're going to replace Charles Lawton, Gene Hackman is you, what you want. And maybe I give the movie points for playing on my expectations that you're not getting that Gene Hackman. You're getting a very weak man who's very just, his ego is very fragile and he's just kind of a simpering coward a lot of the time. So I guess, you know, maybe I give the movie points for not giving me what you would expect from a Gene Hackman performance, but there was that sort of initial frustration of not getting that kind of dark, menacing Gene Hackman. Yeah, he's he's like, he's got that De Niro. When, it, when he's on form, he's got that silence. He, he acts in silence, doesn't he? He just seethes in silence. He's communicating just without saying anything, you know? And there's not too many actors that can pull that mm-hmm. off, really. They're really you know, go through 20 different expressions in silence, you know. But like you say, he didn't really... But, but yeah, yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying, that that, that that was maybe what was called for this time, you know? Yeah. I think that was the right choice for the film. I, I think Gina Hackman could easily have overpowered it, whereas I think giving Will Patton the room mm-hmm. to to be the conniving one. Yeah. Uh, and almost, I mean, you don't ever sympathise with Gene Hackman, and you shouldn't. No. But he is almost a good guy at the end. <laughs> sort of, but he's so pathetic. Like, the way he turns on Will Pat, you're just like, this man is just the, like, worst of the worst. There's nothing dynamic or special about this man. He's a guy who's, you know, gotten this title, and we have all this stuff about, you know, phantom subs and all that, which is basically, that stuff's all kind of disposable, really. But they're trying to present this Gene Hackman character as like, this is a great man. Like, we have Will Patton introducing him and talking him up. Like, this is clearly an amazing guy who has this job. And by the end, you're like, this guy is a worm and nothing else. But, but you know, you know it, that scene in The Office where, where um, it all comes out, and I think, I think Costner's actually thumped um, the, the, the guy, yeah. Um, and then it's, it's like, you know, 
it's like it's outside a pub somewhere, you know, then then Gene Hackman's in the middle of them, trying to break it up. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> I did. I thought it was great. It was like realistic. I, I really liked that. I thought it was, you know, yeah. It was really physical. All three of the actors were in there just, just having a go at each other. and You know, was... I thought he was going to grab hold of Costner in a headlock or whatever, but no, he was like, he was, he was like, he was just like seeing three drunk miners outside of a bar in Skegness, you know? So, uh, yeah. <laughs> for, for the listeners, Andy is allowed to say that because he is from Skegness. <laughs> <laughs> I've been there, I can yeah. confirm. And there are some miners still. Yeah. That's true. Um, before I think we move on to like not clear or anything like that, is there any final thoughts people have about the film, Andy? What do you have? Um, I, I think I've, 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 you know, I've, I've really enjoyed batting it about. Really, um, I've look, looking at my notes, I think I've no, I've, I, I rest my case, Scott. Yeah, I rest my case. Okay. Thank you, Cam. What about you? Yeah, I want to highlight the performance of George Zunza as the um, tech expert who I thought was really fantastic. Yeah. The character's name is Sam, and he's in a wheelchair. And this is kind of the confidant that Kevin Costner has throughout the film. And like a lot of the time, characters like this can feel a little generic. Mm. I thought he brought so much personality to this character. Yeah. Um, I felt so horrible when things did not go well for yeah. Sam. Um, and I made a note, never meet in an empty <laughs> gymnasium, <laughs> ever. <laughs> it will not go your way. <laughs> But rookie error. I thought, you know, if you're going to have the tech guy who is, you know, um, zooming in and enhancing, he was really good. Like there was layers to that character that he's just bringing that aren't necessarily on the page. There was a bit of a spark to him. Yeah. Like he, like the screen almost lit up when he was there, which was nice. Um, no, that, that's a good shout. And I suppose I will also point out, uh, and this is just something I wrote down in my notes, uh, Jason Bernard's character of Major Donovan, who was the head of the CID team that were investigating yeah. Well, I'll use air quotes, investigating. <laughs> he really reminded me of, and this is a this is a deep cut. People might might not get this reference, but uh, Worf in Star Trek: The Next Generation. Lay it out, Scott. Because because every time he tried to do something, he was shut down. You know, if you watch Next Generation, he, Worf would be like, Captain, we should fire at them, and, and Picard would be like, No. And he'd be like, okay. And that would be it. And that would be basically every episode. And so in this film, uh, Major Donovan would walk in and be like, yeah, I, I, I'm going to send my guys out to talk to that suspect. And then Kevin Costner would be like, no, 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 I'm doing it. And he'd be like, oh, okay. And he'd just slink back into his office. And you know, this, this guy's supposed to be the head of CID. And if you're looking at like rank, he's actually on par as a major to a lieutenant commander that Tom, uh, Kevin Costner's character was. So he could have told Kevin Costner to do a, you know, to go do one. Yeah. But, you know, he just, just took orders from the guy and just kept getting shut down. It was uh, a, a, quite a sad show for him, unfortunately. You just picture that guy going home at the end of the day and his wife being like, hey, how was work? He's like, ugh. Ugh. <laughs> Maybe he gets the Oromoff Award in this film. <laughs> yes, yes. He is the guy in the corner drinking whiskey and just, like, crying. When Costner does does the mechanism, the old trick with the coffee on the, on the leg, and he, he goes off to change, he's shaking his head, isn't he? He's thinking mm. this guy's a proper tosser, you know? <laughs> well, he lets him get away with it too. Like, he saw him, saw him do, it, do yeah. the setup of knocking the coffee over and then getting it on himself. Like, yeah, like, I, I don't know what his game was, but he maybe he was just, like, 
not happy at work anymore. He just couldn't be bothered. Yeah. <laughs> Possibly. I'm, I'm not going to fight you. Sure, whatever. What problem? Yeah, you killed him. I don't care. <laughs> it's a paycheck. As as we said in the very early episode, he uh he he doesn't live for work. He works to live. Exactly. Exactly. Um. Uh, another note I had. Uh, what did you think of the scene where Kevin Costner eats bugs off the windshield Ugh. while uh, trying to seduce <laughs> Sean Young? I mean, I I do it every day. What's your problem? Uh, I will have you know that was actually a Kevin Costner ad lib. He came up with that idea. So he just thought, hey guys, I know what would work in the scene. Mm-hmm. Bugs. Yes. Was he Was he actually eating them then? I don't think so. I think his character's faking it. I, I, if he is really doing it, that, lings, uh, that brings a level of derangement to this character I'm not comfortable grappling with. But uh, yeah, I think that was just a play thing. But I, I wonder if how much of this was just Kevin Costner. Who knows how many takes him and Sean Young have done of this sequence. Maybe he's just like, let's try and throw throw a hand grenade into this scene that's kind of fun sure i mean it does make it a bit more memorable she must have really liked him <laughs> mm, yeah she seemed entertained so um yeah also i just had another note i thought was interesting scott you and i when we did the man with one red shoe we talked about how like for an early tom hanks film you don't you don't really feel the movie star yet whereas like here i felt like as an early um you know costner film you could feel the movie star I agree. I agree. I, he is, in terms of performances, apart from maybe Will Patton, he's he is my MVP of this film. Mm. And you can tell when he's on the screen, he is a star. Yeah. I, at, the, at the end of this film, I'm 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 so psyched about Kevin Costner. Uh, the next film of his, I'm really looking forward to watching is Waterworld. I haven't seen it before, but I've heard it's really good. So. Oh, Waterworld! It's uh, it's interesting. <laughs> it's it's pretty crazy. I. I was kidding. I've heard, I've seen it. It's awful. It was just a joke. <laughs> it's a joke. I'm never watching that trash again. Oh, I don't know. It's kind of a fun Mad Max riff. I don't know. I've always gotten a bit of amusement out of it. That's just because you have webbed hands. True. That's very true. Yeah. I'm like Stromberg in uh, The Spy Who Loved Me. Yeah. <laughs> um, I I don't think I have any sort of final thoughts, really. Um, the only thing I sort of noted down is they has this film has this like Hitchcockian trope of the the innocent man, mm-hmm. uh, which I I enjoyed it from that angle as well. I mean, I think I don't I don't know where I stand. I've seen this film two times, and I I go back and forth in my head of whether I really liked it or not because I did find it like boggy in the middle and maybe a bit convoluted, but like the highs were so high. Right. To me, this is like an entertainment. You know, if back in the day when they're making these slick, star-driven films, this one really falls into that. This is a pure entertainment. Well, I guess that probably leads us on to the question. It seems like a perfect time for it. So, is No Way Out making the knock list? We have a guest this week. Andy, you go first. What do you think? Yes or no? Uh, I'd have to say no, because... Because for me, the way you know the the period be- before the uh, before Sean sadly fell off the balcony, you know, um, if that relationship was handled like you say, if there was a bit more of a courtship, if if she was kind of rebuffing his advances and then he won her over, and it was a little bit not as rushed uh, and realistic, then maybe we could stand there and say, yeah, it's a modern classic. Uh, spy story so to speak but i just think that 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 how long was it did you say 40 minutes was it before we lost sean young it's she dies about the 45 minute mark 
yeah, it's too long, you know. So really, it's fifty-fifty, isn't it? So that sounds awful, doesn't it? So what you're saying is you wish uh, that she ate some bugs with him. She must have really, really liked him. She must have. I mean, yeah. yeah I... <laughs> you, you know, it's love when you're sharing bugs. On. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. With with that face, who would go near Kevin Costner, really? <laughs> Honestly. Well, exactly. Um, okay, so that's we got a no so far. Cam, what about you? Yeah, I'm a mild no on this one, and the thing about this one is, I, I said it's a pure entertainment, and I think it's a fun movie. I think people should check it out. Um, but it kind of falls into that same sort of category as when we were talking about something like The Born Identity or Men in Black, where I go like, these are fun movies, and I I think they're totally worth recommending. But in the case of this one, you know, I, I didn't have necessarily the issues with the Sean Young relationship build up, but the twist stuff I thought was pretty clunky. The book ending stuff I should I should specify. Um, you know, elements like the score kind of detract from it. Like it's not a perfect movie, and I don't think every movie that makes the knock list should be perfect. I don't think Our Man Flint is a perfect film, but it feels like one that has a really great concept, and there's bits of it that kind of wander off and get a little confused. But overall, I just thought it was a fun movie. So for me, it's a it's a it's in a uh, it's an affectionate uh, no. Okay, well, it's one of those occasions again where both uh, votes are no, and so what I say is useless. I actually was, I was on the precipice of yes. I was honestly um, around really up until the twist at the end, and then I was kind of like circling back on it. See, I, if anything, I think the twists at the end have impressed me more. it's left a mark on my memory. I will remember this film for those twists. I think, much like Andy's problem, I had a real problem with the romance at the start. I didn't feel the connection between the two characters. And I I just wasn't as interested until that sort of tension arrived. And not that every single film on the knock list is a 10 out of 10 completely perfect. Some of them have issues. But... I think this one just had one too many issues just for me to justify making the list, even though even if I said yes, it wouldn't matter. Um, it's it's one of those films where I would say, watch it, absolutely. Like, you'll have a blast. If you like spy films, give it a watch, but I wouldn't recommend it as one of the best spy films of all time. Yeah, for sure. So there you go, folks. That's three no's for No Way Out, and as such... No Way Out is not making the knock list. Before we talk about what we're doing next week, we have a short clip from our friends over at the Shoot the Flick podcast. Hey there, this is Frankie Sparks. And this is Sky Eisenberg. We are Shoot the Flick. Yes, an official Paradoja podcast. Every Wednesday, Scott and I introduce each other to a brand spanking new movie that the other one has never seen. We talk about it, give our thoughts on it, and also share some behind-the-scenes fun facts. We want you guys to come enjoy watching the movie with us. Yes, so check us out on Instagram and Twitter, at ShootTheFlick. Check out our weekly episodes every single Wednesday on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and iHeartRadio, and pretty much anywhere else you can find a podcast. We hope you guys give us a listen soon. Bye! That was, of course, Shoot the Flick podcast. You know, we're always chatting with them on social media. They're great guys. Uh, one of them's even called Scott, so of course I love them. Uh, and of course, you can find them on all major podcast apps. Uh, now, Cam, before we get to next week, I want to say thank you to Andy. Andy, thank you so much for joining us this week. I appreciate your time. 
Well, thank, thank, thank the pair of you. Um, really enjoyed it, gentlemen. Yeah, had a giggle, haven't we? So, um, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And of course, you know, we'll, we'll leave details in the show notes of the episode. But if people want to hear more from you, where can they find more about the books and your music? And of course, hear more from you on social media as well. Where can they find it all? Uh, well, I'm, I'm on most of the platforms. Uh, the website is andionics.co.uk. Um, Spy Fire Modernism. Um, say hello on there. Get the dossier, the barbell dossier. Um, and I pop up on Spybury as well with a few brush passes and, and stuff as well. And the books are on Amazon, The Glimmer Girl and Shamstone. Yeah, so thank you, yeah. Just just uh, look up Andy Onyx. I imagine if you type it into Google, we'll find you pretty easily as well. But, of course, we will leave uh, connections and links to everything in the show notes. So if you want to hear more from Andy, you can just check out our notes and head on straight over. But, Cam, what are we doing next week? Well, a little bit of a change of pace. We're jumping up to 2019 to tackle our final Charlie's Angels film, the Elizabeth Banks-directed reboot, Charlie's Angels. This is one of those films I've heard so much about but never actually seen. Mm. I feel like the the legacy of the film left more of an impact than the film itself, kind of like the Ghostbusters reboot from a couple of years before. Sure, yeah. Um, which I think uh, was probably for similar reasons. But I'm I'm willing to give the film uh, a fresh start and just try and go into it without that baggage that to, to was was really lumped on it from the critics and stuff at the time. Definitely, yeah. Um, I think it's a more interesting movie than maybe some would expect, and I think we'll have a good conversation about it. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch Charlie's Angels from 2019. And we are, of course, a proud member of Quite the Thing Media and Podbury Podcast Networks. You can, of course, follow us discreetly at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, if you've caught gonorrhea, I'll kill you.